0: Hey everybody from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown, I'm Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos, and today on The Breakdown, in this June Pride Month, we are joined by Kate Kendall, whose pioneering work with the National Center for Lesbian Rights helped bring down legal barriers for LGBTQ people and usher in historic legal victories around adoption rights for gay and lesbian parents, same-sex marriage, transgender rights, I'm getting tired, workplace protections, there's so much to talk about. There is.
0: Kate Kendall, by the way, now with the California Endowment, they fund... Programs and policies aimed at reducing barriers to quality health care, especially for people of color and low-income communities. So lots to talk with Kate Kendall about in a moment. But first, Marisa, the election is over, but it's not because it's we're over. still counting ballots. There's more than a million <laughs> ballots left to be counted in California. And that's been good news for people like Karen Bass down in Los Angeles. Uh She has now uh, gone ahead of Rick Caruso, who spent, what, $40 million to get his name out there? Uh, And that's changing the sort of the dynamic of that uh, election down there. And so there's, uh, we'll talk about some of the other races, but that's a big one. uh, That's a big one. That's a big shift.
2: And that was really one of the two local races that caught national attention because, as we all know, a lot of the statewide races and and other uh, ballot fights here were not as exciting. Um, And so I do think it's interesting to see, you know, a lot of the national attention was sort of, and, and the narrative. Was built around this idea that Rick Caruso had crushed Karen Bass, that Chase Boudin was going down by a 20 point margin. Well, it's not looking like that anymore.
0: It's not. You know, every election now, we say, look, folks, what you hear at the end of election night is not the final story. But you nobody know, listens. Nobody listens. And, you know, I think, to be honest, we kind of forget a little bit, too. I know, you it's know, hard. because that narrative, and, you know, you go to San Francisco, Chase Aboudin, the DA, 60 40, he lost Prop H1 to recall the DA. But now it's down to 55 45. You know, still a big margin, but not quite the same narrative. Narrative. Right,
2: we were just talking about, like, what's the adjective there to use? It's decisive, maybe not a landslide, Yeah, right? I think,
0: you know, p- political types, usually if it's 55, 45, that is technically a landslide. But it's kind of subjective, for well, sure. okay, fine. But we I can, think when wait, you get—
2: I'm sure there's a Twitter debate for that.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the question is, will he run? You know, he could run in the fall because there will be a race. Breed is going to—London Breed, the mayor is going to appoint somebody to replace him. So we'll have I'm to— I'm like—
1: <laughs>
2: It gives me like PTSD Oh my God. to think about another Chase the campaign. Um, I know. But... Things just
0: feel like they're settling down <laughs> a little right now.
2: Yeah. It'll be, uh, as always in San Francisco politics, a wild ride ahead. Um, a couple other races to update folks on. Down in Orange County, young Kim uh, Congresswoman, Republican Congresswoman, who um, was kind of fending off a challenge from the right, it does appear that she will face off against uh, Asif Mahmood, who is a Democrat. Um, that definitely looks like a bit of Of a safer seat for Cam, I think, than uh, nearby Michelle Steele and Jay Chen. Another race will be following. Yeah, that's going
0: to absolutely. But it's still that Orange County, LA area, very much uh, purple. Uh, We've got now we think, what, four to you know, maybe even five seats up I that think... could be competitive. We were talking earlier about the third congressional uh, district uh, where Kevin Kiley is going to be facing off against Kermit Jones, um, who has an interesting background. Yeah.
2: A black Democrat, former, uh, served time in the armed forces as a doctor. I mean, raised that's on the a thing. blueberry
0: farm, didn't you say? He,
2: yeah, raised on a blueberry farm in Michigan. I mean, it's. I think it is, I, I feel like we need a little bit more information and time to really decide the number of potential swing seats here in California, but it is looking like it could be six or more um obviously different issues in every district and probably similar district (laughs) issues in in every district uh just two more other races scott um Mark Levine is still battling to get that second place spot in the insurance commissioner race. Uh, he's a Democrat. Ricardo Lara, yep. Yeah, Robert Howell, the Republican in that race, is about 25,000 votes over Mark Levine. So um, if, you know, Howell pulls it out, much easier race for Ricardo Lara, the sitting insurance commissioner. Yeah, he's
0: down to about 36 percent, which is not great for mm-hmm. an incumbent. Uh, but, you know, not many people knew who Mark Levine was. That will change. And presumably, if it is him against Lara, that he will... Pick up A, you know, keep a lot of the endorsements he he got, and then also pick up a lot of declined to state uh, no party preference and Republican votes as well. Yeah,
2: so that will be one to watch, and then of course the Attorney General race. It is looking like Rob Bonta more and more likely that he will face Nathan Hawkman, uh, the more moderate of the two Republicans in the race. Eric Early, the kind of uh, Trump affiliated candidate, is still down several percentage points, um, but as you said, still a million votes to count. So we'll be watching this in the coming days and potentially weeks.
0: Yeah. And then we got to mention, I guess, the January 6th hearings. We were all uh, riveted by that. We'll be talking with our guest, Kate Kendall, about that uh, very shortly. But uh, Pete Aguilar, uh, relatively new, not brand new, but a relatively new member of Congress from the Inland Empire, former mayor of Redlands, California, was really the kind of one of the lead questioners today. Did, I thought, uh, an impressive job. Uh, there was a panel that included uh, judge, a very conservative judge, Michael Ludig, had been on the shortlist for the Supreme Court when George W. was president. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of chilling, you know, when you think about how close we came, as Judge Ludig said, to losing our democracy.
2: Yeah, I mean, this has been really such a a different type of hearing than anything I've ever seen from Congress before. I mean, the production value everyone's talked about, they actually hired a Hollywood director to help with that. But also just the sort of tone, you know, this is a very well orchestrated um, sort of set of hearings. Interestingly, uh, the chairman is allowing different members to sort of take the lead. So it was Aguilar. Today we saw Representative Zoe Lofgren from the Bay Area uh, take the lead a few days ago. Of course, Adam Schiff is involved in all of this. On the other side of things, another Californian, John E. Uh, The former Chapman University professor who was fired for attorney general one year. Right. So we both like know this guy. And it is such a trip to see him becoming the central part of this case against Trump. Really. you know, his interactions with the vice president's staff was really at the center of a lot of this. And, and we um, found
0: out today that he sought a pardon uh, from <laughs> if, from the president. is still
2: on the table? Just put yeah. me on the list. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Before we do, just a reminder that as those last batches of votes are counted, keep an eye on kqed.org slash elections for the latest results and ultimately the final results. OK, when we return, we're going to be joined by longtime LGBTQ legal rights advocate Kate Kendall. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And here with us today is a woman I first met in 1996. This is an image that is still very much in my mind. She was on the back of a flatbed truck with a megaphone outside a UC Regents meeting in San Francisco. And she was protesting against a proposed ban on affirmative action. And I thought, who is that woman? She is really is dynamic. <laughs> and, you know, we, I actually introduced myself to her that day. And of course, she has been not just dynamic, but incredibly effective as director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights for more than a couple decades, fighting and winning many legal battles uh, on behalf of LGBTQ people. Kate Kettle, happy Pride Month. Welcome to Political Breakdown.
3: Happy pride to you, Scott and Marissa. And Scott, I remember that day too because I was like, "That guy is good looking."
0: Aww, <laughs> Aww really? Stop, no don't. And, then it, and then it turns
3: out he's smart too. So uh, hmm. I'm super, I, I'm super so happy many, to be here. There's so many
0: so many directions I could go with that, but we're not going in any of those directions. Uh, we we mentioned these hearings, and I'm wondering what, when you think about you know what what the January sixth committee is looking at, what we're hearing about the testimony, uh, all the documentation they have. What through line do you see between that and some of these other things we're, we're reading about just this week with, you know, the Proud Boys uh, trying to disrupt something in Coeur Idaho, right here in the Bay Area, Drag Queen Storytelling Day. You know, what are your thoughts about that?
3: So interesting. I was thinking about this as I was walking to my office this morning. Uh, we are in a very perilous moment, there's just no two ways about it. And I feel like it, it feels heavy uh, for all of us. The last couple of days I've been attending a youth mental wellness summit down here in LA sponsored by among others, the California Endowment. And you can just feel it with these young people and everyone in the room that the level of threat and the, and the sense of being unmoored from what things that we felt like we could count on sort of core values and principles but, you know, I have to say, I'm so glad they did these hearings, because I do think we are seeing flashes of honor, even today, from folks who are, were you know, totally Trump supporters, mm-hmm. who are willing to tell the truth and defy the party. And it it just makes me feel like, you know, the sort of may you live in interesting times, here we are. But also the peril demands more of us in this moment. So it's like, all right, people, this is what we were born for, Mm -hmm. you know, suit up and let's go.
2: And to your point, it's making some interesting bedfellows, right? I mean, looking at somebody like Liz Cheney, who, you know, I don't know if everybody knows this, sister. but yeah, when her sister came out 20 years ago, disavowed her. I understand that they have reconciled. But, you know, she's really was this very staunch conservative, still is in a lot of ways, but has really stepped up here. I mean, how how is that watching for you?
3: When I first saw her when she opened the hearings last week, I before I was even aware of the emotion, I was like, Oh, I'm sort of in awe of this woman and I'm like no wait you can't be in awe of her that's Liz Cheney and you know she's torching her political career doing this by all she's playing lines, the
0: long says, game though I think but play, I, well possibly. playing
3: the long game of honor and playing the long game of fidelity to our democracy and and really being a true profile in courage so while I'm sure she and I disagree on most everything else standing up and calling to account those who fomented probably the most dangerous attack on our republic certainly in our lifetimes and i think in in centuries is something she will be known for and i think she's already getting the nobel prize or something because of standing up and not that that's what she's seeking but at least it just shows that somehow there are some people that yeah. are trying to hold the center together.
0: A profile encouraged to be sure. You know, and, and Kate, just thinking about the sweep of time uh, that you've seen in your professional career and just as a person, you know, sodomy laws being struck down, same-sex marriage bans going down, workplace protections for transgender people, uh, laws around adoption, parental rights. And, and I'm wondering, as you you know, as you think about all of that, all those you know, victories, which of course had some defeats along the way as well. There may be some in the future, but like, do you you see like a linchpin to all of that? I mean, was there, did they all flow one from another or, you know, how do you see it?
3: You know, Mirame Kaba, who is a prison abolitionist um, and also a writer, wrote that hope is a discipline. We have to practice it every single day. And that's what we did. I mean, Scott, you'll remember, Marissa, maybe you, although maybe not, you know, in the 80s, when thousands of gay men were dying and the government mocked the idea that they should even care, the Reagan administration finding it ridiculous to even be asked about it. And so out of nothing, we built an infrastructure to save our men and others impacted by AIDS because we never gave up hope. We never gave up that fighting back was worth doing and would eventually end in something better than what we were seeing. And so that historical arc has been true in every single fight I've been involved in. Marriage was seen as fanciful, Scott, when you and I met in 1996. People were saying to me, will we ever win it in our lifetimes? And then like don't and some people didn't even think later. we should
0: try, right? Exactly,
3: that's right. That's right. Some people were like don't even go for that. And not even, you know, in the lifetime of a college freshman We then won marriage from that moment. So as perilous as this moment is and as crushing as I feel it and I do feel the weight of it, I really have to think about kind of what you say, what I've seen and what I've lived through and where I felt hopeless. And then all of a sudden you see a Bray and and people show up after Prop 8 passed. Mm -hmm.
0: On the same night that Obama got elected.
3: Yes, and that was an amazing and crushing night. And yet, if it hadn't been for Prop 8, I don't think we would have won marriage as quickly as we did. People showing up and galvanizing and being in the streets and fighting back is what wins every single battle.
2: Well, that's Uh, Then in this moment, probably more important, right? Because what we see is, I think, a playbook that was used to fight same-sex marriage being used against trans children and families now. Um, We see... You know, I know one of the first big cases you took on was around parental rights, right, of women, especially, who came out and lost all of their rights as mothers. And yet in the trans fights, we're seeing something different, which is sometimes it is the parents themselves. I mean, there's a man, a, a father in Texas really leading this. How do you think about that sort of, you know, contrast? And does it make the fight more challenging? You
3: know, it makes the fight I think actually more global because it's not just the trans individual fighting for their own dignity and right to self-determination and bodily autonomy and being able to live their authentic self. You're now activating parents who are like, what are you talking about that you're going to, you're going to threaten my kid with psychological harm by denying them the treatment that they need that affects the entire family. That affects the neighbors, the cousins, the grandparents. It it, it it has a way of galvanizing, a. I feel like in some ways, a larger cadre of people to stand up, even though, and I don't in any way want to minimize the toxicity of the legislation that we're seeing directed particularly at kids. But there's a bunch of people standing between government, like these individual state governments, and these kids and saying, you have to come through us before you're going to get to them.
0: Do you think there's any political price to be paid at some point, you know, for people like Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, or Ron DeSantis, who's likely going to run for president? Because, you know, there was just a recent poll that showed like 71% of Americans support same-sex marriage now. Um, And so I just, you know, I just wonder, I mean, is it short-term gain, long-term political problem or... Is it just good for their fundraising and maybe re-election chances?
3: Yeah, it's short-term, damn yourself to hell. And long-term, never live to fight another day. And I was in a room with, you know, 300 young people over the course of these last couple of days. And I'll tell you what, they're having none of this. And pretty soon, these are gonna be folks who are pushing the levers of power. Not that there won't be countervailing forces. We understand what is going on, and especially with what Trump has done and who he's galvanized. But we're about to see, I think, a real turn in the tide of who wields power. And it's not gonna be who's in power now, and it's not gonna be their adherents, and it's not gonna be their single fans. It's gonna be an entirely new generation that embraces Uh, a full panoply of what it means to be human in this society and supports all sorts of ways of identifying and living in the world.
2: Do you feel like I mean, we're seeing these lines being drawn very clearly between white nationalists and their racist beliefs, but also the way they're targeting the queer community, um, immigrants. I mean, there's there's (laughs) this whole, you know, bs white displacement theory is like really based on a a whole group of people but to your point does that give the other side more power because it's not just one group being picked on um i was thinking you know a few years ago we didn't see trans rights or human rights signs out there and there's actually a lot of history within the queer community of tension between different groups right so i mean give us some hope here like do you feel like there is some you know look i have for a long time and feel it even more now,
3: if you're not doing anti-racist work, uh, you are hurting and harming and doing active damage to the queer community and our fight. Uh, This is, queer people are literally everywhere and LGBTQ people are represented in every single demographic. And if we are not as a community of white LGBTQ people fighting for a world that dismantles racist superstructures and white supremacy, we are signing on for the denial of our own liberation. These movements are all connected and the same enemy, you made this point, Marissa, the enemy of people who are LGBTQ is the same enemy of black people, brown people, indigenous folks, regardless of their sexual orientation. And so we I feel like there's a moment here where we're becoming more united than I've ever seen the queer movements and BIPOC movements, and that we have to really run with that.
0: You know, the trajectory of progress for, say, same-sex marriage was relatively quick compared to some other struggles like voting rights and civil rights, that kind of thing. And yet we're in this moment also where the Supreme Court could very well strike down Roe v. Wade. We're expecting a decision, you know, in the coming weeks. What Impact you think that will have if they do, uh, either like further weaken or strike down the right to a, an abortion. I mean, of course, in many states you can't get one anyway. But what what's the political ramification? Like, what 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 happens after that?
3: Oh, dude, I think it's release the hounds. I mean, it will be. I think many people right now, you know, have been sort of pulled away by just the politics of distraction. And in most people's lifetime did not, you know, most people grew up where abortion was accessible and have never lived under a regime that is like the handmaid's tale to some degree. If that were to happen, I think they will accelerate uh, their own demise and their own death uh, as a political party. And obviously this is mostly coming from the GOP. It will be, unfortunately, a very cruel uh, and degrading perhaps generation for women who live in many of these states. But mark my words, it won't last longer than that.
2: do you think do you worry, like some have said that this could lead to the erosion of other rights that were really only won in the past decade or two, many of which you know you've helped litigate to to gain in front of the Supreme Court?
3: we can't count on the court anymore and if we were to leave all these questions up to the court i think we would see an erosion to, to even this the workplace protections for transgender people that we just celebrated the anniversary of last week uh if you leave this to this court uh who is so woefully uh partisan we could see an erosion of all of those rights marissa but i, I don't think they'll get there and i think we will have for the first time, really in my lifetime, I used to always we used to always count on the court. That's where we went to vindicate rights. I think what we're going to see is the court will become uh, less crucial, and we'll have political solutions hmm. because we'll elect these bums out of office, and we'll elect individuals who actually have who share our sense of what it means to be human and our shared humanity.
0: You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. So we're talking with longtime LGBTQ legal rights advocate, Kate Kendall. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. Kate, you have a really interesting background. You uh, grew up Mormon in Utah, uh, and queerness was something that you knew about, you know, or did you? And was it talked about in your family? And at and what point did you finally come out and to them as well?
3: Well, I just turned 62 in April, So, that will help people understand that uh, we never talked about this. The only time I ever heard homosexuality, and it was that term used, was in conjunctions with like murderers and thieves and people who were going to hell. And I never really thought that much about it. That was just the way it was. And then when I started to come to consciousness myself as a a teenager, this was probably my late teens, uh, I recognized that pretty quickly, I could not be a part of a church that condemned me to hell. And I actually overcame that pretty easily. Lots of people do not, and they still suffer with the loss of their faith or the loss of the church or a sense of um, self-loathing based on their sexual orientation. Luckily enough, I never had that. And one of the main reasons is when I came out to my mom when I was 22, who was up until her death, a very devout Mormon, you know, as I told her through tears, she took my hand and she said, oh, honey, the most important thing to me is that you're happy. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> I mean, it brings tears to my eyes thinking about it right now, but it, um, it meant everything to me. Yeah. It made it possible for everything that followed thereafter, which is why I, it's so important. If you have or know of queer kids in your life, uh, I don't care who you are to them, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a cousin, uh, let them know you love them unconditionally because that makes all the difference.
2: Got chills hearing that story about your mom. I know your sister, um, your whole family has been very supportive. I'm wondering if you think that that upbringing, that experience, I mean, you didn't actually resign your membership in the church until 2015 when they really went after same-sex couples and their children. But do you feel like that gave you a perspective that has helped in your work as a civil rights attorney, as an advocate, that maybe you can see different perspectives in a way that you know, those of us who grew up on the left coast might uh, have more challenges with.
3: I do think that's true, Marissa. And I think it's less it's less because I grew up that way, because I'm 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 pretty pretty or naturally pretty judgmental of folks like I have a very hard time in this world right now with folks who are Trump supporters or who are racist or who are homophobic. I I it, I want to just dismiss them out of hand. But I really try to channel my mom whose biography If you had just looked at who she was and how she was raised, it would have been like, well, this is a mom that's not going to support her gay kid. That's for sure. And she defied that. And she defied her biography and wasn't defined by it. And she really always talked to me about, you know, you should love everyone and you should meet people where they are. And so I really do try to honor her and really her faith, even though it's not my faith, um, by doing my very best to meet people where they are, failing, asking my mom for forgiveness and trying again.
0: (laughs) You uh, were executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And I want to ask you about the L word in that uh, that acronym. You know, you mentioned a while ago that, you know, during the AIDS crisis, people rose up to, you know, I think you said to save our men, you know, and lesbians were very much at the front lines of that. But it wasn't always reciprocated. And I wonder, like when you joined NCLR, what kind of reaction was there? What kind of reputation was there for the organization, especially among gay men who are, you know, often big donors to these kinds of groups?
3: I was very lucky, Scott, because and, you know, maybe this is part of the thing of growing up in Utah you know, the, the queer community is so small in Utah, we didn't have the luxury of the lesbians are over here and the gay <laughs> men are over here and never the train shall meet, right? I mean, I yeah. was hanging out with gay men more than I was hanging out with lesbians when I came out. And so when I came to San Francisco, I actually literally didn't know any better. I, <laughs> I didn't really know much of this history and until people told me about it. But by that point, I'd already come here with my arms wide open being like, come on, let's all do this. And so men have always been crucial to the support of NCLR. And what I appreciate about that is even though NCLR has always done work on behalf of gay men, one of our earliest cases when Roberta Actenberg was the executive director was representing an HIV positive gay man who was challenged for custody of his kid. So we've always represented gay men, bisexual, transgender people, and always will. Uh, But we wanted to elevate lesbian leadership. So that's why the name was what the name was, because as we know, lesbians and women generally uh, don't occupy those spaces in many ways. So we've benefited from an amazing relationship. And I think part of it was my own ignorance that I should feel any differently than I did when
2: I got here. Sometimes ignorance can be good, right? <laughs> we need a little bit <laughs> of blinders. Um, well, before we let you go, we know you kind of split your time between LA and up here in San Francisco. It is pride month. We have our big pride parade happening and it looks like there is a deal between uh, the police officers and some of the politicians who were upset over this question over whether uniform police should march in pride. Uh, just a minute or so left, but what are your thoughts and what are you looking forward to?
3: Well, I'm, I'm glad they worked it out. Uh, You know, I understand that is a very uh, challenging issue. The most important thing I think about pride is to um, exercise our muscle for liberation. Uh, You can party the other 364 days if you want. Uh, And while pride should be fun and I want it to be fun, I want it to also galvanize us to set our sights on how much do we want? How much more do we need to accomplish and for whom? Who are we still leaving behind? And what's the commitment we make, not just for how far we've come and how much more progress we wanna make, but for individuals? may have been left on the sidelines or whose voices uh, are still crying out to be heard fully.
0: We're going to leave it right there. Uh, That is a long conversation in and of itself. But uh, Kay Kendall, thank you so much for joining us. Happy Pride. And thanks for all the work you've done.
3: It was a joy. Thank you.
0: That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio.
2: Our producer is Guy Marzorati. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And
0: I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you time next time everybody
2: hi there i'm ranthad the from throughline